Okay, as per your request, uh, you wanted a special shiur today to explain what um, what the actually that even the title on this page isn't correct. It should be Tzom Hasiri. What the uh, what the fast of Asar Batevit is. Oh, I'm going to fix that page. Don't worry. Um, this is a page that's been updated several times, and so even the one that the, the shul went out uh, has been updated since twice, and it'll be a third time. So uh, for anybody who wants to send me an email, let me know, and I'll I'll send you the proper page, uh, because it's uh, really, really something of an unfolding mystery. Uh, but as we all know, today is a fast day, meaning tomorrow is a fast day, Asar Batevet. And uh, your question was, why are we fasting? We're, the, the, the quick answer to, us to why we fast on Asar Batevet is actually will take two minutes. Uh, however, the impact of Asar Batevet is a much bigger story. And an interesting uniqueness to Asar Batevet, um, which is surprising, uh, will come forward and we'll, we'll kind of uh, highlight the special nature of the day. Uh, I wanted to just point out that Asar Batevet is in a sense the oldest fast day we have meaning it dates to the oldest event that we can that we mark as the real reason for fasting you know people explain that we fast on certain days because of adam rishon and noach and Matushalach and whatever but uh as far as the historic record goes this is the fast that records the event that the oldest event in history that we fast for put it that way um and on the other hand uh, it is in a in a very large sense the most modern fast uh in i believe it was 1950 or so the rabanuta roshit um um was dedicated today and designated today to be yom hakadish haklali the literally the general kaddish day today meaning asarbatevet and original intent, 1949 or 50, was that people who had relatives who were murdered by the Nazis, Yimachshmam, or otherwise died in the war, but we don't know when they died. Today's the day, say Kaddish, which is why in our yeshiva, for instance, today is the real Yom HaShoah. I mean, it's the day in which there are sichot given about the Shoah. And of course, Rav Mital, our founding Rosh Yeshiva, himself was a survivor, and uh, the Shoah hit very much home for him. Uh, and uh, and he would speak about the show on a regular basis of Lichtenstein, so it's all also who who um, whose family barely escaped the Shoah um, and ended up in France in the in the mid thirties. Um, also spoke at length about the Shoah. Uh, it's not nationally recognized. It's much more within a small part of the religious world that uh, Asar Vatevet has that status. So it's interesting that Asar Batevet, again, rec records and we fast on Asar Batevet for the oldest event that we can connect the fast day with, as we'll see in a few minutes, but it's also associated with the most recent uh, event that we fast for, um, and that is the and that is the Shoah. Of course, there is a Yom HaShoah that we're familiar with, which is on Chavzayin B'Nisan, the 27th of Nisan. That is the one that Am Yisrael broadly um, commemorates that's when there's the sirens in Israel and the public gatherings uh, uh, in Israel uh, about Yom HaShoah and it's at that time also it became more popular in the states in the 80s and afterwards to have a Yom HaShoah gathering uh, on that day as well uh, there were a lot of people people had problems with Yom HaShoah being when it is not just because the, there's one thing which is sort of a shadowy excuse which is it's the month of Nisan we shouldn't be having sad days during Nisan we shouldn't be saying morning prayers during Nisan, which of course doesn't hold water because we have Yizkor on Pesach, 
and we dafka say avarachamim on the last Shabbat of of Nisan because of uh, because of the the Crusades. So it doesn't make sense. But the bigger problem was that the reality is that the state of Israel and many of the leaders in the first uh, decade or so after the Shoah were very uncomfortable with the Shoah. Not uncomfortable the way that all we are all uncomfortable and, and pained and angry, but um, but were uncomfortable with it on a national level because it seemed to represent for many people that image of the Jew who meekly went to slaughter and didn't fight back. Of course, we know, of course, that that, that is not the case. And in many cases where there were tremendous acts of, of valor and bravery and fighting back in all sorts of different ways in the ghettos and even in the camps and on the trains. Um, but there was a lot of discomfort. So they selected to have the day, the national day of commemoration of the Shoah be actually the day of the of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, because that represented sort of the sort of the uh, pre prefiguring the Israeli image of, of fighting back. And the full name of the day is actually Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura, the day of of Holocaust and of valor, right? So that's where some of that. So a lot of people were uncomfortable with that because it was like their dafka picking that day because uncomfortable with the Shoah. So in any case, there's these two different Yemei HaShoah during the year. And Asar B'tevet is one of them. We came, we came here and you asked me to, to discuss why Asar B'tevet is on our calendar, not for the last uh, 30 years or 40 years, but for the last uh, 2000 plus. So let's go to some history. We have to do a little prehistory before we touch the history and the text here. Um, I'm going to walk us all the way through. Yoshua brings Am Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael. We'll call it 13th century BCE, but... Uh, it's not so clear. Uh, and we conquer a good part of the land, most of the land, settle in. And after Yeshua dies, we have this period, which we might call an interregnum between Yeshua and, and Shmuel, the next great leader. And we call that the period of the Shoftim. And that's a period of tribalism and of meaning of tribal living and tribal government and of constant backsliding and occupation by foreign forces, etc., and then Shmuel comes along, and finally the the mode of governments governance shifts to a monarchy, and ultimately to a united monarchy, which is under David, and then under Shlomo, and then under Shlomo's son, it splits, and that split remains for roughly two hundred and fifty years or so, maybe two hundred years, uh, until finally the northern kingdom that we call Israel or Ephraim or Shomron is defeated by the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army makes several attempts to defeat Judea, this smaller kingdom, which is a weak kingdom, uh, based in Yerushalayim. Uh, and we are defended, including the famous miraculous defense against Sanchevib's armies uh, in around the year 701 BCE. But approximately 100 years later, uh, there's a new player on the block, and that is uh, the people, the the nation that identifies itself as the Babylonians, this is in Iraq, overthrow the Assyrian Empire, which has become weak uh, and kind of imploded. They defeat them, and then they start marching west, which is where everybody in Mesopotamia marches, uh, because they want to get ultimately to the real uh, gold prize at the end of the rainbow, which is pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which is Egypt. And of course, we're always in the way. So uh, Babylonia ultimately comes in in the year 597, uh, conquers Jerusalem, and um, lets everything sit. Uh, the Kohanim are, are able to remain. Uh, the uh, the Beit HaMikdash re remains. 
The city remains. The king is taken off. The aristocracy is taken away. The artisans are taken away to Bavel as uh, as captives, and a puppet king is installed, a fellow named Matanya from the from the royal family, and he um, and his name is changed to Tzidkiyahu, and he becomes a vassal of the Babylonians, and he's told, you know, you be a good guy and you do what you're supposed to do, and everything will be fine, and uh, he does so for approximately eight years, and then in his ninth year. Um, as you can see here at the beginning of our first text, he signs a treaty with Egypt, which is probably the worst thing you could do if you are a Babylonian vassal. And the Babylonians say, you did wrong, you're not a good boy, we're going to come after you. And they come. And here's where our story starts. In the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth month, on the tenth day, that's tonight. So the king and his armies came, and they camped against the city, or against the king, which means they set up camp, a threatening camp of an army camp. And they built a siege battery around the city. And the city was in, is besieged. Until the 11th year of Tzidkiyahu, right, which means it's either a year and a half later or two and a half years later. Now notice, we don't know what month this is. It says on the ninth of the month, we're not sure what month. The famine just grew intense. There was no food. And the walls finally broke down. And then ultimately what happens is that the king escapes uh, through the city and he's caught on his way to Yericho and he's brought before Nebuchadnezzar up in Antioch where his base is and uh, they bring his sons in front of him and they slaughter his sons in front of him and then poke his eyes out. And in the meantime, the Babylonians enter the city and And by the way, again, we don't know what month it was that on the ninth month the walls uh, caved in, we're, you know, we're broken down. We'll find that out elsewhere. In the fifth month, that's the month we call Av, on the seventh of the month, which is the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, which is corresponds to the 11th year of Tzidkiyahu. This is the year 586 BCE that we all know is a black letter day for us, not a not red letter day. So his chief executioner came into Shalim by Srof at Beit Adonai. He burnt down God's house, or he burnt God's house. You can't burn down stone, but he burnt God's house at Beit Hamelech in the palace, at Kobate Yushalayim, all of the houses of Yushalayim, but called Beit Gadol Saraf Baesh, and every big house, whatever that may mean. The Chazal say Beit Midrash, Beit Filah, Beit Chomot Yushalayim Savim, Natsu Kochel Kastim Asher Rav Tavachim, and they destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. Now, what you see going going back here, and this is just on the, uh, and for your benefit, for your uh, convenience, I've given you the English translation of all of the texts, of the biblical texts that we have, because this year is chiefly anchored in, in Tanakh. Um, as you can see, the siege was the beginning of the end, and the siege was today. But there's an, yet another component to that, which we will discover later on. But you, the siege strangled the city, and it took either a year and a half or two and a half years, most likely a year and a half, until the city finally 
gave in and the defenses were down and they were able to breach the walls and come through. That says the ninth of the month. Again, we don't know which month. We'll find out later. And on the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, they come in and destroy everything. Right now, the fifth month is Av. This is the seventh of the month. What what commemorate commemorative day does this sound like? That they burnt the Mikdash. Go ahead, somebody just unmute yourself and say it. Um, the, the, Tishabab. Tishabab, right. Except the problem is here it says the seventh. You're right, it is the Shabbat, but the problem is it's not the ninth here, it's the seventh. We're going to see about that. All right, and here is the English of that text. Now, um, there's an interesting response that we find uh, jumping ahead among the people, but it's a, a curious response. And I don't want to spend too long on this piece, but it is a fascinating piece in and of itself. After the destruction, and I'm jumping ahead because we're going to come back to the story of the destruction and look at the issue of the dates and everything else because it's critical. After the destruction, the Babylonians' kingdom is not long-lived. 47 years after they destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. What's 47 years? Nothing. The Babylonians are defeated by a coalition of Medes and Persians led by a fellow you know by the name of Koresh. That's probably close to his name. And uh, and Koresh issues a proclamation allowing all of the peoples who were conquered by uh, by the Babylonians and taking a slave people to return home, rebuild their their communities, rebuild their cities, rebuild their palaces, rebuild their temples, practice their religion, speak their own language, etc. It was a very benevolent, uh, what somebody likes to call light-handed empire, and it worked very well for a while for them. And the Jews are now mainly in Bavel, a whole group of them in Egypt, and a small group in Jerusalem. And there are two major prophets there, Zechariah and Haggai. And there is a delegation sent to Zechariah with the following halachic question, as you see. In other words, we're, we're, you're now back in Yerushalayim. We're rebuilding the Mikdash. And now the question is, Shall I continue to mourn in the fifth month? Fifth month being Av. Shall I continue to abstain as I've done for a number of years? Which means the picture that we're getting is that the Jews in Babylonia had practiced some form of asceticism, of, of restraint, of, of some sort of... Uh, um, um, some some form of perhaps even self-oppression and affliction during the fifth month. No date is given. No date of that month is given. And they're saying, should we continue doing so? After all, we're doing it because of the destruction, and now it's been rebuilt. Now, parenthetically, Zechariah's answer is a very interesting answer, because you would think that the question is, should I continue basically fasting? There's two possible answers, and they are yes or no. Either no, there's no reason to fast because we're back, or yes, because we still have to remember what happened or for whatever the reason. Zechariah's answer is neither one of those, and Zechariah's answer essentially is you're asking the wrong question. And in the end, he doesn't give them an answer. He says, you want to fast, fast. You want to eat, eat. That's not the issue. The real issue is 
Have you paid attention to the messages that I sent through those Nevi'im that ultimately when Am Yisrael did not listen to those messages, everything was destroyed? The issue is not fasting. The issue is fixing the problem. If you continue to mistreat the vulnerable and, and, and the disenfranchised, if you continue to plot against each other and to, and to sit and concoct plans to hurt each other, then everything is going to go down. And fasting is not the issue. Right? You have to take heed to those words and you have to really change your ways. It's an interesting answer. But the interesting piece for our purposes is that the beginning of Zechariah's answer is in the second highlighted piece, You are fasting and mourning in the fifth month and the seventh month for the last 70 years, right? And, uh, and you know, and, and then his answer is, why, why are you fasting, etc.? Notice that they asked about the fifth month without giving a date. His response is, you're fasting in the fifth month and the seventh month. Now, what's the fifth month is? Av. Call it Tishabav, but Av. What's the seventh month? It's not Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is not a day of fasting for sadness, a mourning. It is evidently the thing we call Tzom Gedalia, which we'll talk about a little bit later which means that his response was, you guys continue to fast to commemorate the destruction of the Mikdash and the assassination of Gedali and everything came along with it. But again, you don't get what it's all about, right? And he gives this very long answer, as I said, which at the end, the answer is not to answer the question. But then he gives near the end of this answer, and it's a beautiful passage, Zechariah Zayin Chet. I, I highly recommend reading it sometime over tonight and tomorrow, during the fast. It's really powerful. And towards the end of it, he has the following prophecy. God said to me the following thing. Before leaving this, there's one other passage i got to show you, which is mind-blowing, because it's a great story that goes with it. Um, and uh, and But right now, I want to focus on this. This is what God says. So we've gone from one fasting day or period, which the people asked about, to two, which he responded originally, the fifth and the seventh month, to a list of the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth month. The fast of those four months, they will ultimately become days of great feasting and rejoicing, not about rejoicing and happiness. And for festive days, special days, and you must love truth and peace. Because that's his message throughout. The way you treat each other, that's what's going to happen. That's, that's how you're going to fix it. And then these days will become not canceled, which is what you've asked. Should we stop fasting? But rather they'll become festive days. All right? That's the nevoah. We're going to come back to this nevoah little very soon, but I want to show you something that I passed by here, but should not be ignored. Please take a look at these psukim, pasuk, dalad, and hey. Zechariah, and this is around the year 517 BCE, has this whole series of prophecies. And included is this one. Ko amar Adonai Tzvaot. Notice, they, almost all of them start with that same opening. The messenger formula, ko amar, and using specifically the name Tzvaot. Od yeshvu zekenim u zekenot b'chavot Yerushalayim. 
old men and women will reside in the streets of Jerusalem. This is not about homelessness. It means people in Jerusalem will live to be old. As you'll see, each person with his own walking stick because he'll be so old. Now, normally we think about that as a curse. Ooh, this guy never can't walk, has a walking stick. This is a great bracha. You're going to live so long, you need a walking stick. The streets of the city will become filled, or the, the, the plazas of the city will become filled with little boys and girls playing and laughing in the plazas, in the squares. Little kids. Very powerful. And his next line is Everybody thinks this is wondrous, meaning this image is crazy. Now, we're talking about just regular life. Old people living an old age to, to a hoary age, little kids playing in the streets. And Hashem says, everybody thinks that this is wondrous. This is impossible. It's a crazy idea. Which is read two different ways. One is as a statement, and one is as a rhetorical question. The rhetorical question is, do you think it's wondrous for me? The way God says, do you think it's wondrous for me to give you a child at the age of 90? Or maybe saying, you know what? It's even wondrous for me, but I'm going to make it happen. Now, it's interesting thing is this is a prophecy that was given in the year 517 or so BCE and was realized in our lifetime for the first time. I have a teacher, um, a friend uh, who's been teaching in Israel since the early, the late 60s, really. And he was always teaching in the American seminaries. And he had a custom every year, you know, kids would come for the year to study, and they would often go back to the States for Pesach. And he would tell them before going, I don't think you guys remember this from the 70s, he would say before going, he would say, I want you guys to come back and bring back Super Bowls. You guys remember Super Bowls? Right? You'd bounce them and they go really, really high. They had this great thing, right? And jump ropes. Right, and the kids would all they'd come back with their super balls and jump ropes. And the first day of class after Pesach, he'd come with a big bag, and everybody would come up and put their super balls and jump ropes and other toys like that into the bag. And then he would go to the Katamonim, which is where the less affluent Jews of Jerusalem lived, and he would stand there and hand them out to kids. And he would stand by and watch and watch Jewish kids jumping rope in the streets of Jerusalem. And he would say, I, I can't believe it. The Rambam never got to see this. Or Akiva Eger not, never, never got to see this. The Beis Levi never got to see this. And I get to live to see this Nebuah. And on his house, when you walk in, you can see in calligraphy on the wall, those two psukim. We live in amazing times. It's something parenthetically, uh, my mother's yard site was today, the ninth of Tevet. And uh, I'm going to come back to the ninth of Tevet towards the end of this year from a different angle and I wanted to dedicate this year to to her memory which has always been it's appropriate you guys asked me to talk about this because my mother was my main influence in getting in, interested and involved in Tanakh uh, and we spent many many hours talking about all sorts of interesting issues in Tanakh um, she loved it and her love her passion really was uh, was something that was contagious for it and um, and this connection, this association, that we really live are living in times in which Sukim of Tanakh, visions in Tanakh, 
Peshuv Adonai Tshivat Zion, Einu Kachomim, are alive in front of us, are, are, are unfolding in front of us, is really just a very powerful, powerful reality. Um, in any case, Yizich uh, Baruch. Um, so this is the Nevoah in Zechariah. And you notice that this is the first time that there is a fast of the 10th month mentioned. It's not mentioned as a fast merely as much as a reference point of saying, this is a fast that will one day become a feast, a festive day. So it's the first time that we hear that there was such an idea of fasting in the 10th month. Question is, what does that mean? So let's take a look here. Here is the English of that. You can download it and take a look. Um, and you see here a, a famous passage in the Tosefta. Tosefta, by the way, the Tosefta of Masechet Sota is a, an amazing work. Uh, Sota lends itself, Masechet Sota lends itself to some agadic uh, excursies. And the Tosefta in Sota has this long agadic uh, tangents that are just really beautiful. And it happens to be that Masachat Sota, the two different famous manuscripts of the Tosefta here, have a much bigger divergence. So much so that in Lieberman's work, which is the work on the Tosefta, you're, normally he has the text and little footnotes. And below you could see if, if in the, different, the other manuscript it was written differently. Here he just has two columns. Kind of look like looks like this. That's how different it is. So we're going to look at the one on the right, but just I put it there so you're aware that there's this is Tavyad Vina, the Vienna Tavyad on the left side is the one from Erfurt. Uh, in any case, Darash Rebbe, Harehu Omer Komar Shem Tzomar Vi Vitzomar Chashvi Vitzomar Siri. Notice it skipped Tzomar Chamishi. Tzomar Rivi is a Shiva Sarbet Tammuz. What's Tzomar Rivi? The seventeenth day of Tammuz. Shibohuv Kaiir. That's when the city walls are broken down. Whoop, time out. Do you remember what we saw in the Pasuk? It said that the city walls are broken down on the... Remember? On the ninth of the month. Right, good, Bill. On the ninth. And here it says the 17th of Tammuz, right? Why is it called a Revi'i? It's the fourth month in the year. Nisan, Iyar, Sivan, Tammuz. Soma Chamishi, Zutisha Ba'av. Yom Shinisrav, Pro Beit HaMikdash. So what's Soma Chamishi? Tishabab, which is the day the Beit HaMikdash was burnt. Except what do we read in the Pasuk? The Beit HaMikdash was burnt on what day? On the 7th, right? The Shvi'i, not the not Tisha, right? Not Shvi'i. Right? Lamini Kashmot Shvi'i, Chodesh Shvi'i. Som HaShvi'i, what's Som HaShvi'i? Zesh Tosha B'Tishrei, right? The 3rd of Tishrei. That's when the governor Gedalia was murdered on the third of Tishrei. We're going to see that that's also not so simple. All right. All right. Now, we have here Va'ani Omer. You can all clarify who's this Va'ani Omer saying, What's Tsoma Asiri? Not the tenth of Tevet, but the fifth of Tevet. What's that? We're going to see the Pasuk in, in a few minutes. That's when the people in Babel found out Yerushalayim had been destroyed. That's a very, very different Tevet. That's a Tevet after the destruction. That's not a Tevet two and a half years, a year and a half before. It's a Tevet half a year afterwards. All right, as we'll see the Pasukim. All right. And So why doesn't it say Som Asiri? 
um right so it should it should have said somha asiri and right this is actually a comment back on the original opinion that soma asiri is asarbateva so if you're going to go in order of the events asarbateva is the earliest the siege happens before anything else so why doesn't the pasuk go somha asiri but some are ve in order to have the months be lined up correctly four five seven ten even though the event of the tenth was a different year all right now this is a shortened form all right i think that is the proper interpretation of the 12th of the 10th month because, and you guys have never heard of Chamisha B'Tevet as a fast day. We passed it last week and nobody noticed it, right? But he says, it seems that Chamisha B'Tevet is correct because then the Pasuk is in order. If that's the case, what order is this Pasuk in right here? Somar V'i is the breaching of the walls. Somar Chamishi is the destroying of the Mikdash. Somar Shvi'i is the killing of Gedalia. And Somar Siri is a few months later when they found out in Tevet that that uh, the Mikdash was destroyed. And that means the Pasuk's in order. Otherwise, Soma Siri should have been first. Right? That's the argument. Question is, what's Soma Siri? Which means, at this point, we're playing with the idea that Asar B'tavit may not exist as a fast day. Very odd. Now, two, uh, two little pieces in Yechezkel. You got to remember that Yechezkel is a critical player in this drama because Yechezkel is an active Navi in Bavel during the destruction. You guys all know the um, celestial chariot vision, right? It's not ever called a Merkava, but you know the Merkava, the beginning of Yechezkel. We read it on the first day of Shavuot, right? What is it, essentially? It is the conveyance of the Shekhinah leaving Yerushalayim because what he's describing is the destruction of the Mikdash and the Shekhinah leaving. But he's in Bavel. Yechezkel is a very challenging, very upsetting safer. Besides the language being difficult and the imagery being hard to, to take, take apart, it's very upsetting to read it. And so here in Yechezkel, you have the following. In Perakhaftal, the ninth year, meaning the ninth year of Tzitkiyahu, meaning today on, on Asar B'tevet, God came to me, Yechezkel says, in Babel and said, Ben Adam k'tov l'cha et shem hayom et ha'etzam hayom hazeh. Write down this very date, exactly this date. By the way, that does not show up anywhere else in Tanakh. Etzam hayom hazeh with a date. Write down this date, this very date. Samach melech malach yishalayim be'etzam hayom hazeh. Exactly on this day, the king of Babel set up his siege battery against Jerusalem. All right, so now we see Asar B'tevet presented to us, not in the historic record of what happened, but as a prophecy where God speaks to Yechezkel 800 miles away and tells him this is what just happened, is happening today. On the other hand, three years later, on the 10th month, on the 5th of the month, the the fugitive, 
the remnant fell, ran away, the refugee ran away and came to me and told me the city of Jerusalem has been attacked. So we have two different things going on in the 10th month. One, before the whole process starts, as the beginning of the destruction, and one, the report of the final destruction that happened. So that's the machloket going on about what is Asar, what is the Tzom Ha'asiri? Is it the fast of the 10th, or is there of the 10th of Tevet, or is there some sort of fast on the 5th of Tevet? Now, this doesn't get settled here because, as we'll see a little later on also, uh, at least the beginning of it, there's a machloket between Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yuchai and his Rebbe, Rabbi Akiva, about what Tzom Ha'asiri here refers to. And yet, that machloket seems to die out because Asar B'tevet kicks in automatically as being the fast day, and the 5th of Tevet gets forgotten. Just an interesting anomaly. But that leads us to the following second stage about this whole series of fasts. There is no way to understand Asara B'tevet outside of the the context of all four of them. Asara B'tevet, Shiva Sarvatamu, Tishavav, and Som Gedalia. They have to be understood as a, as a sequence. And that's going to bring us to something unique and odd about Asara B'tevet, which even though in the public mindset, besides the issue of Yom HaKadish, is always gets the lightest treatment. Asar B'tevet is not surrounded by anything special. Unlike Shivasa B'tamuz, which kicks off a period of mourning, Tisha B'av, which is this highlight of mourning, Som Gedalia, which is the middle of Asar, Asar Yimei Tshuva, and has all the special slichot. Asar B'tevet, you know, and if you live in our northern hemisphere, I don't know what it's like, Alan, in, in uh, South Africa, but if you live in our northern hemisphere, it's uh, and then you skip breakfast. Get a little, get up a little early, have a cup of coffee. You say, you say when you go to bed tonight, you say, "I'm not starting the fast yet." You get up at five o'clock, have a cup of coffee, and uh, and you skip breakfast and you have a late lunch. And so, it's not, and people don't give it much thought in that way. It's also in this broad, long winter of between Hanukkah and Purim. So it doesn't it doesn't have that that same oomph, and yet you're going to find a very big oomph coming. Um, okay, so we're now going to go to part three. Part one was to sort of to introduce the historic background, and then part two was to look at this passage in Zechariah that listed that somehar ve'ivet somachamishivet somashvivet somasiri, and the machloket about only one of them. What is somhasiri? Is it the earliest event, which is the siege, or is it the latest event, which is the news that Jerusalem had been destroyed? These two plays. And now we go to the third, which is yet another interesting and un unusual to us because of how we practice feature of these four fasts. The Mishnah Masachat Rosh Hashanah teaches that the and then, and you know, Masach Rosh Hashanah is mainly not about Rosh Hashanah. It's mainly about Rosh Chodesh, and mainly about Kiddush Chodesh. And when we would sanctify the moon based on testimony, that meant that every month was a question mark: When is Rosh Chodesh? Is it on day thirty or day thirty-one of the previous Rosh Chodesh, basically? And as soon as Rosh Chodesh would be announced, we had to send messengers out uh, as far as they could go to notify people when Rosh Chodesh was. And notice the Mishnah, Shisha Chodashim, source seven, Shluchim Yotzim. We send them out for six different months. Al Nisan, why do we send them out for Nisan? I mean, as soon as we know where Shkodesh Nisan is, we get them out as far as they can go, as quickly as they can go. So people have to know where Pesach is. 
You don't want to violate chametz. You want to have a proper seder. Al av Notice, not for sivan. Why not sivan? What about shavuot? How are you going to know when shavuot is? After Pesach. Exactly. You don't need a date for Shavuot. You just need to count days from... Once you know when Pesach is, you know what Shavuot is. 49 days, right? Okay. We, they send them out for the month of Av, so people will know when Tisha B'Av is. Right? So people generally know there were never 30 days in Elul, so therefore if you know when Rosh Chodesh Elul is, you know when Rosh Hashanah is. For Sukkot. And Al Kislev Notice what's missing here. We send Shluchim out to make sure that people know when to keep the, the holidays properly, even when the fast of Tisha B'Av is. But we don't send any Shluchim out for the month of Tammuz or for the month of Tevet. So the Gemara asked that question. I didn't make up the question. The Gemara asked the question right here. Why don't the Shluchim go out for the other two months when there's fast days? The Amr of Khan of Abizna, Amr of Shimon Hasid, and he quotes our Pasuk in Zechariah and says the following. Here's the answer. Kari Lahutzom, the third line, the Kari Lahutzasor Vesimcha. The Pasuk calls them fast days, the fast of the fourth and the fast of the fifth. And on the other hand, it says they will be days of festivity. So how do we re reconcile that? Meaning the, the, the resolution of that is inherent in the Pasuk, but they want to spell it out. Now, what's shalom? Good question. We're going to see. We're going to see it's not so simple. So when there's shalom, these are festive days. Ain shalom som. Right? If not, then they're fast days. The problem is that doesn't solve our question. Our question was, how come we don't send... By not sending shluchim out, that means we're not that concerned if people get the date right of the fast of Tammuz and the fast of Tevet. Why not? Well, because sometimes there might be festive days, sometimes there might be fast days. Well, then either way you need to know when it is. To either celebrate or to mourn. So Amr of Papa. Papa comes up with a tripartite solution. When there's shalom, then there are festive days. If there's days of persecution, then fast. If there's neither, like most of history, it's up to the people they can fast if they want to. In other words, you want to fast, there's a fast day you can commemorate. You don't want to, you don't have to. And therefore, we're not going to send shluchim out and bother them to go out to tell people today's Rosh Chodesh Tammuz when the fast itself is a voluntary fast. So why are you sending shluchim out for Tisha Tishbab is different. Tishbab is just terrible. And therefore, it seems the Rapapa's answer is Tishbab was never voluntary. Even in relatively mild circumstances, not excellent circumstances, but in mild circumstances, Tishbab is still a day of fasting. Right? Then on Tishbab, all these terrible things happened. The Beit Hamikdash destroyed. The first time, the second time, we'll see neither one of those is so simple. Uh, Beitar, the fort of Beitar in the year 135 was uh, was massacred by the by the Romans. And Nechashayir finally 
hundred, a while later, the Romans flattened the city and took all the buildings off of the, you know, where the Mikdash was. So Tisha B'Av so terrible that either that means, even though it's voluntary, but everybody's going to want to fast, or it's not voluntary. Okay. Now, of course, what we need to clarify for this is, what does it mean? What do these terms mean? What does it mean, Bizman Shiyeh Shalom? What peace? And when is Shmad? So when, what's the middle ground? Meaning at what period is the Mishnah referencing here that they're in sort of a nishtahin, nishtaher, and therefore it's voluntary. It's not festive, it's not great enough to call it a festive day, and yet it's not bad enough to have to be a mandated fast day. And we're talking about Asar B'tevet here. So the reality is that there are two broad directions taken by the Rishonim. All right, let's start with the Rambam. The Rambam comments on this in his commentary on the Mishnah. During the second temple period, meaning the rebuilt, rebuilt temple, those two fast days they didn't keep. If you wanted to, you could keep them, which means the Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt, and yet you could still fast on those days if you want to, but it's not mandatory. That's the way the Rambam read Rav Papa's solution, which is very odd because, of course, the Mishnah is talking about after the destruction, we would send Shluchim out. And you, and you see it in the Mishnah. Because the Mishnah then says, just to take a quick peek, the Mishnah says, when the Mikdash was out, they would send Shluchim out for ER also, because of Pesach Sheni. Which means the rest of the Mishnah is referring even to times after the Mikdash is destroyed. So this Rambam is very strange. He seems to say that the context that we're putting our Mishnah into is when there was a Mikdash, voluntary days. That's why they didn't send out um, uh, agents to go tell people when Rosh Chodesh Tammuz and Rosh David were. Um, right? And he quotes the Pasuk. Here's how he interprets the, 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 the Drasha. He says, it's like God says, you want to make it fast, a fast day? You want to make it a feast day? Up to you. They're fast days, they're feast days. You take your choice. Very interesting. Rashi here on the Gemara says, what's Shalom? Now, somebody at this point should, or pretty soon, ask, uh, doesn't this uh, have implications for today? What's Shalom? Shalom is when we're not under foreign subjugation. And that, by the way, would be then when these become feast days, not 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 uh, voluntary. The Rashba says, The Jewish people are on their land. doesn't mean every Jew is there. The Jewish people are, are settled in the land. The Ritva says a little differently. The Jewish people are on their land and the Beit HaMikdash is up. Right? Over the Meir, he says, The nations don't subjugate us. We're independent. Which, of course, the test would be, what did the Jews do during the Hasmonean era? And it sounds, at least from the Rambam, that well, they have their choice of what to do, although you could argue that it should be mandated that it would be feast days. All right? If the Jews are independent, you're not even allowed to fast on these days because they're called festive days. Right? The Beit Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, in his commentary on the Torah says, 
Our Mishnah is referring to our day. Our day meaning post the destruction. And that's called Shiyesh Shalom. The nations do not have power over us. Do not, we're not subjugated. It's very interesting. Which means based on this, you do really have to ask the question, well, how do we deal with Asar B'tevet and Shiva Sabatamuz today when um, Am Yisrael is in the most powerful, independent state it's been, certainly since part of the times of the first Beit HaMikdash. We were never this independent and powerful anytime during the second Beit HaMikdash. So the question is, so how do we deal with that? That's a, that's a good question, and I'm not taking it up, but it, it's not a simple issue. Um, so this is really part three. right? And again, part one, looking at the history of it, Part two, looking at the passage in Zechariah and suddenly seeing references to fast days. And part three was seeing how those fast days were dealt with by Chazal and how they understood that these days were ultimately going to become feast days uh, and festive days at some point. And the question is when that was. It sounds like in the time of the Gemara, at least in the, looking back in the times of the Mishnah, they felt that it was an intermediary period where Tevet and Tammuz were basically voluntary fasts. So we didn't send Shluchim out. But, there's, but when there's Shalom, they're festive days. And what's Shalom? Of course, that is, we saw, a majority of opinions that we saw was that when the Jewish people are independent and on their land, and then we saw the Ritva, they added in also the Beit HaMikdash is built. So again, good fodder for discussion regarding our status today. But I told you that there's something very special about Asar B'tevet in this whole picture. And like I said, it's odd because Asar B'tevet definitely gets the shortest shrift of all the fast days. Because again, it sits there, Punkta Zoe is this very short day in the middle of the winter, uh, which by the way, sometimes it happens on Friday, which we're going to look at in a second. Uh, it's the only fast day that we have that can happen on Friday. <laughs> Meaning, Tzom Gedalia can't, and she went in Tishabov camp, and she was in Tammuz camp. And I don't know if you recall, I remember the year my mom passed away. She passed away on a Thursday, which is the 9th of Tevet. And the 10th of Tevet was on a Friday. And what do we do? We always start Shabbat uh, not earlier than sunset, but we don't wait not long because you're not supposed to enter Shabbat fasting. And it makes the whole Asar Tevet even less than a, the, the short day that it is. All right, very, uh, very interesting phenomenon. So to take a look at the special nature of Asar Batevet, I want to mention also that I'm looking at the picture and there's somebody missing. Uh, Sherwin uh, right now is in the hospital. Uh, his name is uh, Simcha Chaim Ben Necha. And, uh, and uh, he wanted me to let you know. And uh, he's in UCLA. Uh, he seems to be doing okay because we we're emailing back and forth today. Uh, but uh, to please keep him in your tefillot. Um, he has pneumonia. And I'll post the name at the end of the shiur. So we have uh, we have my mom's yard site. We have one of our chagrim in the hospital, and I'm leaving in a day and a half for my daughter's wedding. So we're 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 doing just about every life cycle thing we could deal with. Um, all right, uh, but now I want to show you something curious about Asar B'tevet. Um, the Beit Yosef uh, in Hilchot quotes the Abu Dirham. David Abu Dirham in the 15th century, uh, great, uh, one of the earliest to really uh, approach tefillah in a systematic way in a commentary. 
רב דוד אבו דרהם כתב בהלכות תענית שהשרה בתיבת הוא משונה משאר תעניות. He said השרה בתיבת is different from the native fast שאם היה חל בשבת לא היו יכולים לדחותו ליום אחר. This is a wild statement. He says if השרה בתיבת were to fall on Shabbat which it cannot in our calendar but if it were to fall out on Shabbat we would not postpone it. I want you to get the picture. If השרה בתיבת fall on Shabbat we would fast. He, that's the suggestion he makes. Now, this is all theoretical because it can't happen on our calendar. And what's his argument? Remember, at the very opening text that we saw, I showed you, it said that, sorry, not it, also in the opening text, but also specifically in the text when Hashem says to Yechezkel, write down this very date, this very date, is the date in which the king of Bavel has set up his siege battery against the city. And since it says, right? So he says, therefore, just like Yom Kippur, we fast on Shabbat. Same thing, uh, we would fast on Shabbat. That's the uh, the uh, the Abu Dirham. And the Beit Yosef says, I don't get it. Where do you get that from? That's what he writes it. He also pointed out that Asar B'tevet is unique, that it does sometimes fall on Friday, and there's a whole protocol for how to deal with it, both vis-a-vis -vis Mincha and the Kriya, and, uh, and when to start Shabbat, all of that stuff, which does not exist for any other fast day. So he's pointing out that Asar B'tevet is unique. I'd like to suggest, in defense of the Abu Durham's very unusual, one might almost call it outrageous approach, to saying that here's a fast day that is not mandated in the Torah, and yet, if we're to fall on Shabbat, we would fast and, and violate, as it were, Kvod Shabbat and Onik Shabbat. Very odd. So I'd like to roll back to our texts. Remember I asked you, what day were the walls breached? The day that we commemorate as a Shiva Sabbatamuz. You take a look here, and it says on the ninth of the month, the walls are breached. Okay, when was the Mikdash destroyed? On the fifth month, and what day? So here on Sefer Malachim, it says the seventh. Right now, um, last question: When was Gedalia killed? When was Gedalia assassinated? What does it say there in the uh, piece? By uh, first day, of, yeah, Rosh Hashanah. Well, it doesn't say. What does it say? It doesn't say really. But what does Bachor Hashvi mean? Seventh month. Seventh month, right? And so the simplest read of that is Rosh Chodesh, which means what we call Rosh Hashanah. And yet, when do we fast? Third day. On the third day of it, and sometimes even on the fourth day, right? Notice what it says in Yimiyahu. In the ninth month, on the tenth, uh, the ninth year, in the tenth month and tenth day, he comes and sets up the siege. That's exactly what we got. Right? Exactly what we got, Asar B'tevet. Now, on the fourth month, on the ninth of the month, that's when the walls are broken down. That's Tammuz now. Now we know it's the fourth month, and it says the ninth of the month, not the 17th. And now, what does it say about the destruction of the Mikdash? What day of, of, the, of Av was the Mikdash destroyed according to this? 
10th. The 10th. So far, we got the 7th and we got the 10th. By the way, we need to, neither of which is nine. Very difficult. All right. The Yerushalmi commenting on the problem of Shivasa Batamuz, commenting on the Mishnah that says that we uh, that we uh, fast on Shivasa Batamuz because the walls are breached, ask, the text says that the walls are breached on the 9th, and you're saying it's the 17th? So the Bavli's answer to that is that the 17th was the second Mikdash. But the Yushalmi's is different. says, Yeah, there was some confusion. Uh, you never see something like this about Tanakh. He's saying, Yirmiyahu wrote down the ninth of the month, and it wrote down in Malachim, the ninth of the month, because there was such being frazzled with everything going on, they wrote down the wrong date. It's really the 17th. It's a wild statement. Now, again, with the time of the destruction, we have the Tanya. The Bavli in Tanit points out that when was the Mitash destroyed? Can't be the seventh because it says the tenth. Can't be the tenth because it says the seventh. Haket side. And they give an answer. They say it started on the seventh and they came in and da 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 da. And finally, the end of the burning was on the ninth. And Rabbi Yochanan makes this statement, which is wild. He says, If I were in that generation, I would have made it on the 10th. That's when a majority of the burning happened. Which, by the way, makes it sound like we're now talking about the second Beit HaMikdash. Rabbanan say the beginning of the burning, that's the thing that you want to commemorate. But notice that there's a good lot of confusion about when the walls are breached about when the Mikdash itself was destroyed. And just to top it off, the Radak in his commentary on Sefer Yirmiyahu that talks about Gedalia says, right, just like Bill said, what's Chodesh? Rosh Chodesh. So Rosh Hashanah, he was killed on the 1st of Tishrei. But since it was Yantif, they made it the 3rd. Because you don't want to fast on Yantif. On the other hand, in Midrash Seder Olam, Bishlosha B'Tishrei Achor Churban Abayit, 52 days, Nerag Gedali Ben Achikam. The Seder Olam has it exact to the day and counts it and says 52 days after the destruction of Mikdash, Gedali was assassinated on the 3rd of Tishrei. Whether Gedali was assassinated the same year or several years later is another problem. But notice that in Parshanut, there is a big question about what day was Gedalia actually assassinated on? So I'd like to make what will sound like an outrageous suggestion about, in defense of the Abu Dirham's point, that if Asar B'Tevet fell on Shabbat, we'd fast. We have a, um, a notion, Rabbi Yossi expresses this, that, um, that if somebody is Chayav Tevilah, even if you say uh, meaning, does a woman have to go to the mikvah on the night that she that in her calendar comes out to go to the mikvah if her husband is not around? So according to the opinion that mitzvah, that there's a mitzvah to go to the mikvah on the right time, then you'd still go, even though you can't act on it. But there's a mitzvah to become tahor. What happens if instead of your husband being out of town, what happens if that night's Yom Kippur? Or Tisha B'Av? So 
the, there's an opinion mentioned in the Gemara that on Tisha B'Av you'd go to the mikvah because if you say Tefillah B'zman mitzvah, and Rabbi Yossi then says Kedai Hu Beit Eloheinu La Beit Alav Lailachat or Tefillahachat, the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash should be painful enough that we can give up one day of Tahara. In other words, that the that the powerful sense of mourning for the destruction of the Mikdash or mourning for the Mikdash and commemorating its destruction should really outweigh this desire of Tefillah Bismana. Why I'm mentioning that? Because one could take the position, and again, I think it's outrageous, but I'm going to suggest it anyways in defense of the Abu Dirham, that really, if any of these days fell on Shabbat, we would fast. These events were monumental um, steps in the taking apart of the Jewish settlement, of Jewish monarchy, of Jewish existence, and of the presence of the Shekhinah in our land. And they, they deserve a fast. Ella, what's the problem? When are you going to fast for the breaching of the walls? Maybe the 17th, maybe the 9th. I'm not so sure. When are you going to fast for the destruction of the Mikdash itself? Maybe the 7th, maybe the 10th, maybe the 9th. I'm not so sure. So we all agree to fast on the 17th. And we all agree to fast on the 9th of Av. And yet, what do we do on the 9th of Av? When the 9th of Av is over in a normal year, we continue mourning for half a day. Because the 10th was also part of the destruction. And the week leading up to it is part of it. But here we see that it could be that the 7th was the day it was destroyed. It could be the 10th was the day it was destroyed. What day would we fast for, for Gedalia? The 1st of Tishrei or the 3rd of Tishrei? Good question. However, what do we find regarding Asar B'Tevet? A stressed statement of Be'etzem Hayom Hazeh. Ktov l'chat shem hayom hazeh. Write down this name, the name of this date, Yechezkel, because exactly on this date, the king set up his, his siege battery against Jerusalem, and that's a date that's never in question. Nobody ever suggests that there was any other date but the tenth of Tevet when the king set up his siege battery. And so perhaps that's what leads the Abu Dirham to say it. Not so much because of the twist of the phrase, but it's the only one of these four events that we can pinpoint with absolute surety happened on that day. So, so maybe that, if it were to fall out on Shabbat, we would fast. Because maybe theoretically, if we knew exactly the day the Mikdash was destroyed, if that fell on Shabbat, maybe we would fast. But since we're not sure, we're obviously not going to. Just like I said, an outrageous suggestion. And we go from the outrageous to the historic, uh, not, uh, historic. Eh, we'll call it a curiosity, but it's more than that. Um, to end off, I wanted to give you a little bit of uh, a sukkariah before the uh, before the fast. We're looking at here. I'm going to make this a little um, smaller so we can see it all on one screen. What you're looking at here is a picture of a tombstone. All right. So here's the story. I'm going to make it quick, but here's the story. Um, the biggest fight that took place in the 18th century was the battle between Rabbi Yonatan Ibeshitz and Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Uh, if you know the story, I'll give you the quick version. If you don't know the story, look into it. It's it's sad, it's it's upsetting, but it's just really interesting. Um, in the very small town of Altena, which is in the very northern part of Germany, Altena 
Wandsbrook and Hamburg. Altena now is a, is a, a, a neighborhood in, in Hamburg, um, was a well-known and highly regarded Jewish community. And the chief rabbi in that community, Rabbi Yonatan Ibeshitz, in the middle of the 18th century, died in 1750-something, 1760-something, um, uh, was very popular, popular throughout Europe. And living a few blocks away from him was Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who may have been the most brilliant man in a brilliant century. We're talking about the century with the Villagon, the century with the Nodabi Huda. I mean, this is a, 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 a tremendous century, and yet Rabbi Yaakov Emden may have been the most brilliant. Um, and Rabbi Yaakov Emden, on a, on, a, uh, on a day in 1751, made a declaration. The background of this is very long, too long to go into now that Rabbi Yonatan Abishitz is secretly a follower of the not only discredited, but long-deceased Shabtai Tzvi. He's a Sabatian. And this immediately led to basically everybody, everybody was important in Europe uh, getting thrown in harem because they either supported Rabbi Yaakov Emden or Rabbi Yonatan Abishitz, and it was a disaster. Now, one of the arguments that was marshaled in favor of the Sabatian identity of Yonatan Abishitz was that his wife would predeceased him, Elkaleb, uh, whose tombstone you're looking at here. The claim was that if you were to look at the last letter of each line in the acrostic of the tombstone um, um, dedication, spelled out Shabtai Tzvi. And not only that, but if you take a look at the um, the date here on top, this is this is the actual tombstone. And it doesn't spell that out. The the sad thing was it was based on unclear how a manufactured report about was what was on the tombstone. However, there is something very odd in this tombstone. This really is the tombstone you're looking at. It said she died on Asarvatevet. All right. Yodit Tevet, I'm just reading the top line, Nepach Lidvi Ulikina Shira Leperakatan. All right, I'm just going to take a look at this. Yod Tevet, the tenth of Tevet, Nepach Lidvi Ulikina. It has now been turned into a day of mourning and dirge. All right, now Shira is the gematria of the year in which she died, uh, which would be. Uh, 715, that's uh, 1755, right? Uh, sometime around this time, oh, some year, right? 1755. <clears throat> However, Shira also was used by Sabatians to indicate Shiarum Hodo, which is uh, something you would write after his name to say his glory should be manifest. So there was that problem. But the real problem was in the in the middle part of that line, across the bow. To say that the 10th of Tevet has now become a sad day because of her passing assumes, of course, that the 10th of Tevet until now was a happy day. How could the 10th of Tevet be a happy day? So you have to realize that the Sabatians maintained that they were already in a messianic era. And therefore, secretly or otherwise, they actually celebrated the four fasts based on the Pasuk and Zechariah. So the 10th of Tevet, the 17th of Tammuz, the 9th of Av, and the 3rd of Tishrei were days of feasting 
in the Sabathian community. And so that was part of the argument is to take a look at this, the 10th of Tevet on the tombstone. It says right there, has become a sad day. Must be that he was a Sabathian. Of course, he might, might have had something very different with it. And Shira made it may have been something else. But there's a little curiosity about the 10th of Tevet uh, that, uh, that I just thought I would share with you. One last thing. I know I'm over time, but I'll say it quickly. Uh, one last thing about this period is that um, today, or tonight, shall we say, or tomorrow, is really the third of three fast days in a row. You did not know this, probably, but the 8th of Tevet uh, is a fast day, the 9th of Tevet is a fast day, and the 10th of Tevet is a fast day. Now, the 10th of Tevet is a fast day, is well-documented. We've spent the hour looking at it, and I, I do hope that now you'll have a better idea of what we're fasting about and why this fast takes on the position, the place that it does. However, there is a uh, a book that came out that various versions of it, starting in the 5th or 6th century, called Megillat Tanit Batra. It's not the famous Megillat Tanit we've talked about in the context of Hanukkah and Purim, but Megillat Tanit Batra is actually a scroll of fast with a list of days during the year that people should fast because of all sorts of things that happen. And it's quoted in one Siman and Shochanach. He has the list there, one of the lists. They're basically your sites. And they Navarro died, and the day that Yoshua died, the day that Miriam died, etc. And on it, it says the eighth of Tevet is a fast day because the Torah was translated into Greek and darkness descended on the world for three days. All right, which of course fits very well, eighth, ninth, and tenth, and you know, the darkness. By the way, the translation took place in Egypt, so darkness, three days, you see the motif. The weird one, of course, is the ninth of Tevet. The ninth of Tevet, it says in Megillah Tanit, Tishabo lo amru rabotenu alma. There's a day, fast day of the ninth, and our, our sages never told us why. And that opens up the door to a fascinating inquiry. If they're trying to figure out what this fast of the ninth of Tevet is, but we'll have to leave that for another year. In the meantime, uh, I hope that you have all enjoyed and that you have a better appreciation for the fast of the 10th of David. And um, and uh, I know that my mom would have enjoyed participating in this year. I would have actively uh, spoken up. The mute button would not have helped. Uh, and uh, she would have had uh, a lot of good, uh, a lot of good points to make. And uh, and I finally remember her today. So you Very nice. Thank you, Rob. Amen. Eh? Yeah.